Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Wednesday, October 20th, and this is your FT News Briefing. China is pressuring McDonald's to help with the launch of its new digital currency, and extreme weather, like flooding, could seep into the multi-trillion dollar U.S. municipal bond market. Plus, Austria's former chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, used to be seen as a beacon of hope, a favorite son-in-law. Then came a scandal. And Kurtz is no longer this kind of favorite son-in-law. He's a bit of a kind of, you know, ruthless, sometimes foul-mouthed political operator. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. China's central bank is getting ready to launch the world's first big digital currency. And it's trying to use the upcoming Olympic Games to help with the rollout. The FT reports that Beijing is pressuring one of the largest Olympic sponsors, McDonald's, to expand digital renminbi payments at its restaurants across the country before the Beijing Winter Olympics in February. McDonald's is already piloting digital renminbi payments at its locations in Shanghai, but China wants the hamburger chain to expand the pilot across the country. McDonald's declined to say whether it was under pressure from Beijing. A person familiar with the situation said Visa, an Olympic sponsor, and Nike, a U.S. team sponsor, were also facing similar pressure. Neither of those companies had any comment for the FT. Hurricane Ida pummeled the U.S. Gulf Coast earlier this year. Dozens of people were killed and several states were hit by flash flooding. As storms like Ida become more common, they could affect the municipal bond market. Bonds are one of the ways cities pay for infrastructure, and a new study shows that U.S. infrastructure is at a greater risk of flooding compared to previous estimates. Here's the FT's U.S. Capital Markets correspondent, Kate Duguid. This group called First Street Foundation put out research last week that shows that about a quarter of all U.S. infrastructure is at risk of what they call operational flooding, which means that it would become non-operational if flooded. Some of the states in the worst shape were places like Louisiana, Florida, West Virginia, but the likes of New York, California, Connecticut were all up there too. In some of the most at-risk cities, places like New Orleans, The share of infrastructure with operational risk was basically 100%. That's incredible, Kate. Um, So how would flooding affect a city's ability to borrow or manage the, the debt it already has? So there are a number of different ways that this could affect the municipal debt market. The first is that, like, there are municipal bonds that are issued to pay for a particular project, and that project may be dependent on um, revenue. So, for example, you raise money to pay for a hospital, and in order to pay the investors on that bond, in order to pay off that bond, you have to earn a certain amount of money through the hospital. If that hospital is taken out by a flood, the source of revenue is taken with it. It might be rebuilt, it might not. Um, That's one of the most direct ways. The sort of more indirect way, but I think the much more dangerous issue, is that natural disasters can drive people away, can drive businesses away, and lower the value of existing property. So therefore, it um, can really shrink the tax base of a city or a state, um, which is another uh, of the main ways that muni bonds are paid off. Uh, All of this also means that their credit risk, so the amount of money that they have to pay to borrow, that that could go up because they're seen as riskier borrowers. All this is a relatively new development, seeing that municipal bonds have always been kind of a safe haven for investors, right? 
Is that changing? I don't think it's changed yet, but you're absolutely right. Municipal bonds typically have long maturities, so they mature in in 15 to 30 years on average. And that's a lot of time for something to go wrong. And so uh, some of their safe haven status could be jeopardized by the fact that, you know, these natural disasters are getting worse and more frequent uh, at a pretty rapid clip. Kate Duguid is the FT's U.S. Capital Markets correspondent. Now to Austria and the spectacular political downfall of the country's former chancellor, Sebastian Kurz. In dieser schwierigen Zeit sollte... That's the 35-year-old leader in his resignation speech a week and a half ago. He was accused of using taxpayer money to bribe media organizations. Kurtz denies all this, but as Sam Jones, our correspondent in Vienna, says, a barrage of text messages came out during the scandal. And they they paint quite an ugly, cynical picture of the workings of government. And and Kurtz is no longer this kind of favorite son-in-law. He's a bit of a kind of ruthless political operator. Sam joins me now to talk more about it. Hey, Sam. Hi there. So, Sam, can you remind me of the details of the allegation? And, And we should mention that Kurtz hasn't been charged yet. The central allegations are that some of his key allies in in positions of influence in the Austrian government used taxpayers' money four years ago or so to illicitly buy adverts in Austrian newspapers in exchange uh, for positive coverage of Kurtz, who was then Austria's foreign minister. Um, That coverage was mostly polls. Now, those polls might have been accurate, but they might have been based on small sample sizes, or they might have been sort of slightly skewed towards him. But the crucial thing is that they were only included, according to prosecutors' allegations, in newspaper coverage, because those newspapers uh, were being paid secretly by Austrian government ministries. So why is this all so dramatic? Kurtz was this dashing young pathbreaker, the guy to shake up Austria's political order. What was it? There were very high expectations that he he would change things, and and it's very important to remember that you know until the coronavirus hit, um, he was you know Austria's possibly Austria's most successful politician of the last few decades. You know he was regarded by his his kind of opponents and also the people that supported him as all this almost like political saint who who couldn't do much wrong, and he did something radical. He actually took the far right into government and. For a lot of conservative politicians across the EU, there was sort of a sense that actually, you know, maybe this is what we should be doing. Maybe the way that we diffuse this problem, this this popular anger about immigration is actually by taking on board some of the concerns and not giving the far right the fuel of being uh, in opposition. Um, so he was regarded as this kind of very clever, um, new radical, almost a sort of center or, or moderate conservative radical. So this has really shaken things up in Austria, Sam. But how is this being seen more broadly in the EU? I think it, it comes at a slightly tricky time for the EU. In Brussels at the moment is fighting a number of fires related to the rule of law in Europe. You know, obviously, there's an ongoing kind of animus between Brussels and Hungary and the regime of Viktor Orban. But more recently, there is this um, huge issue in Poland um, over the enforcement of, of EU law in, in Poland. 
And now you add Austria into this mix and it kind of begins to look like in Central Europe there is this real kind of rule of law issue. I mean, I hasten to add that the Austrian government has, has certainly not changed its stance towards the EU um, as a result of this. But, but the sort of picture it paints is that in, in Central Europe, there is a problem that's worrying because Austria is a small but very important little central European state that really is culturally and socially at the heart of what the EU would like to think of itself as being. And if this state is also seeing distrust in its democracy and in its judiciary spread and politicians uh, willing to criticise those institutions heavily, um, then that perhaps says something really worrying about the state or the health of democracy and of political discourse in the EU. Sam Jones covers Austria for the Financial Times. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. WeWork is finally set to list on the public markets. The co-working company tried to go public two years ago. Back then, the high-flying company was valued at $47 billion. But a lot has happened since then. WeWork's charismatic founder, Adam Newman, was ousted, new management slash cost, and the firm's basically been humbled. It's still losing billions of dollars, though. But yesterday, shareholders at a blank check company called BoX Acquisition approved a $9 billion merger with WeWork. The co-working company will start trading on the NASDAQ stock exchange this Thursday under the ticker WE. Before we go, we want to let you know that we were nominated for a People's Love You Award. For folks in the U.S., that's the European version of the Webbies. And we were nominated for Best News and Politics Podcast. Now, we love what we do, and we don't need an award, but it would be really nice to get one. And we're hoping you could help us out by voting for us online. We'll link to the Love You Awards website in our show notes, and I'll tweet out the link for my handle on Twitter. I'm at Mark Filipino. And thank you so much for your support. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 